0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
1: Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. On the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network, it's Cindy Howes, and I am the host. Delighted to have you here. Before we get into our guest today, oh boy, it's Tim O'Brien. Let's talk about ways to stay in touch. You can sign up for our newsletter, which we send probably once a month at basicfolk.com. Click on the red sign up for the newsletter button. You can keep up to date on what is happening with our latest episodes and also Hear wonderful musical musings from myself and basic folks guest host Lizzie No. again, sign up at our website, basicfolk.com, or you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at basic folk pod. No longer tweeting. Basic folk, no longer tweeting. Fine if you do. We're just we're just not there with you. Uh, or if you'd like, you can make a financial contribution to Basic Folk. We're a listener-supported podcast. You can give us $5 a month at basicfolk.com slash donate. You can head to the shop and get a Basic Folk beanie that are hand-knit by my mom. Uh, or you could just tell a friend. Keep listening. It's all good. Okay. Tim O'Brien is one of Bluegrass's beloved players, from his work with the innovative Hot Rise to his yearly appearances at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. He's just released his first album of all original material, which is something to be said for his 50 year career. At 69 years old, it's no surprise that the theme of aging pops up on quite a few of his new songs. He opens up about his perspective on aging and what it has looked like for his predecessors in Bluegrass. He reflects on his history from choosing Colorado over New York or L.A. to being very aware of how hard it was for his sister Molly O'Brien to have a solo career and be a parent. Nicknamed Red, Tim O'Brien serves as a hero and mentor to many of today's finest players in the genre, including Sarah Jarosz and Chris Thiele. He recognizes the importance of allowing younger generations to step into the spotlight while still being ready to honor his bluegrass heroes. In our conversation, Tim gets into things he's noticed changing for the better in his scene and also talks about how technology is both a good and challenging thing. For instance in-ear monitors. They're great. However, they really isolate the players instead of really feeling like they're playing together, that sort of thing. Very interesting stuff coming from Tim O'Brien. His new album is Cup of Sugar, and from it, we're going to check out my favorite track, which, if you know me, this is like a big duh. This is your favorite track. This is the song Little Lamb, Little Lamb, and then we'll get to our conversation with Tim O'Brien on Basic Folk. (music)
0: my heart to oh, see you camper once again. You wouldn't understand. Little land, little land. The winter's long and it gets so dark and cold it reminds me. I keep on getting old. When I was young once, but I won't be young again. You wouldn't understand. Little land,
1: little land. Tim O'Brien, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's so great to meet you.
0: Good to be with you, Cindy.
1: Uh, one of the themes that comes up on the new record, Cup of Sugar, is aging. And I thought we'd start there. You say, I'm in my late 60s and doing fine, but I'm looking at things from that older perspective. When did that older viewpoint start showing up for you?
0: <laughs> it's creeping all along. You know, from from age 40 on, really, you know, you start thinking things differently and. But, you know, as I don't know, you're sort of striving a lot, of you know, to sort of fit in with uh, everybody. And then at a certain point, you kind of start just not caring about that. You just do what you do. Mm. And it gets more and more that way. Um, I don't know, making records and re- making music, I don't really think about what other people are thinking anymore or what the trends are. I just know I am do what I do. That's one part of it uh one manifestation mm-hmm. of it but you know the, getting old like uh you can't i can't hear as well and i can't move around as fast i can't play as fast certain things i'm just not interested in doing or you know i i, I don't know mm-hmm. and i'm just trying to do the best i can with uh you know the time i got and writing is is the is the best thing i think i can do getting it down mm-hmm. on tape but i don't know uh as far as it you know affecting <laughs> how I how I interface with the world is is definitely you know I'm not gonna go do certain things anymore. It's just uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, just slowing down. And um, you know I wonder how long I get to do this, but I keep finding new ways to get into it.
1: Yeah, people are talking a lot about like longevity and aging well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you do you feel like you're aging well, and like what has been the example set for you when it comes to aging?
0: Well, you know, a lot of the uh, my heroes they didn't. Uh, I, I worry about the the kind of scenario where you're on the road and you're you know you're not really able to do your job justice and just keep doing it. You know, uh, it's like a, you know it's, you hear these you know people like they're farmers or they're they work in a factory job that's not you know viable anymore. They go, I don't know what else to do. Bill Monroe, Ernest Tubb, uh, John Hartford—they just kept traveling until they couldn't anymore, and then they were then they were in the hospital and died. And I don't really want to do that. Uh, I want to slow down <laughs> gradually, but it's uh, it's hard, you know, because I love doing what I do, and uh, so I don't know how mm-hmm. aging well is just uh, one thing. Is like for instance, this summer uh, I have a job at a festival. Where I have a set, but I'm really the artist in residence and I'm kind of supposed to interface with different people on the festival as kind of uh, an elder. you know they're going to sh- I'm going to sit in with them and they're going to you know do something that they remember that I did you know maybe I don't even remember it. So it's kind of funny. I, I, I have to look at my, <laughs> my whole career and kind of assess it and go, well what, what do they want to do with this? I guess Aging Well would be uh, letting the other, the younger crowd on the festival circuit kind of take the forefront. They are anyway. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I let them, you know, just being at home with that. And it's really nice to be invited onto their shows. That's a good way of Aging Well, I think. You know, it's just uh, I don't mm. need to be the headliner, but I can be an important part of somebody's, uh, you know, influence and that they can show that. That's really nice. Yeah. It's a feather in my cap, um, but you know, it's uh, a Telluride last weekend. Uh, Sam Bush is a little older than me, but he's still the headliner. I'm kind of pulling back. I'm kind of falling down off the off the little buffalo radar, where you know the uh, younger groups are are getting the better time slots and stuff. And I probably won't even be there next summer. I think they're going to start um, doing it every other year for me, which is. That's it's always been every year, and but you know uh, I'm not drawn as much as these other groups, and there's finances to consider, and so you know I'm I'm okay with that. Two weeks before that, I was at the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame inductions, and was uh, paying tribute to the Lonesome Pine Fiddlers, and that's a group from the '30s through the '60s, and um, Bobby Osborne was their original lead singer for the recordings, and. Paul Williams is another. So these guys are 85 and 90 years older are there to get the award, but they didn't really want to sing. They wanted to let me sing. So I'm kind of paying tribute to them, and that kind of thing is going to start coming back on me, and it already has. I'm not sure what I'm getting at, but it's, uh, it's all part of, you know, we're all part of a tradition, and it's good to, uh, for the younger crowd to remember who the folks who went before them are. And that's what I like I like about that that particular facet, but I guess it's coming back on me a little bit. it's It's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. I think, well, gee, don't I have more to do? And I do, but uh, I have to make room for everyone else. It's kind mm. of hard that's a hard question you asked.
1: <laughs> we're just getting started here, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I wanted to ask you about radio. So you were born in Wheeling, West Virginia, which is by the way, like very close to where I am in Pittsburgh. Um, so very cool. Um, yeah. As a kid, you were exposed to music like Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, a little bit of Lawrence Welk. You started listening to and attending a live radio show, The Saturday Night Jamboree. You got to see performances by Jerry Lee Lewis, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard. The radio was so different back then, So important. Um, can you talk about your relationship to the radio as someone who has been listening? Since a young age, to someone who has had songs played on the radio and then performed on the radio.
0: Yeah, um, my very first radio was a was a little crystal set that I think I got as a kit at Radio Shack or uh, someplace like that. You, it's just uh, you could. It's a single earphone, and you could use the. I had a radio heat radiator in my room that was the. You attach this little clip to that for the antenna. <laughs> and it ran on, it didn't need any battery or anything. It was just a little crystal that accepted the signal. And the uh, songs I heard were like The Twist by Chubby Checker. And I don't know what else. It was like 1960 or something, you know, 62. And then those, that same station that would play the pop hits would also, I mean, it would. Uh, as I was starting to play guitar, Roger Miller was on the pop radio as well as on the country radio. And uh, so I was listening to wild pop. right yeah listening to <laughs> pop radio and uh, it would be um, you know one-eyed uh, say purple people eater or teeny weeny itsy bitsy polka dot bikini or uh, it might be uh, Elvis it might be chubby Checker and then later it was the Beatles but they also have Frank Sinatra you know so it's like a really pop radio was kind of a big mix. And then it became more the British invasion and Motown and that kind of thing was like, that was what pop radio was. And the, the middle of the road stuff was kind of shuttled to the side. And then somewhere in their uh, late 60s, FM radio became more important and underground radio. And there was a station in Pittsburgh that if you were on a hilltop, you could pick up the underground radio and they would play Jefferson Airplane and Taj Mahal and then Muddy Waters and then... Phil Oaks and then, you know, uh, the doors, you know, it was, uh, it was everything. Uh, Well, it wasn't everything. It was, it was roots music and all the stuff in the sort of modern pop stuff, the the psychedelic kind of stuff and rock and roll stuff, Jimi Hendrix. So that kind of stuff turned me on. And and you started hearing some country sounds too, as that came in with uh, some of the groups like the birds doing country rock Mm -hmm. and, uh, it got, you know, folk music and country music and rock kind of blurred a little more there. And that's when I started attending the uh, radio show down in downtown Wheeling at the WWVA Jamboree, because it was country music. And they were professional musicians every Saturday that I could hear. I, could, I was playing the guitar and I wanted to see other people playing the guitar. And so, uh, but they were doing it through a country music format.
1: Would you have to buy a ticket?
0: Yeah, you had to buy a ticket, but you could buy one for $2.50 and be in the balcony. And uh mm-hmm. see the whole show, and uh, you could go you could get closer if you wanted to by going to the photo aisle. They had a little aisle on the side you could you could walk up there and wait in line to take your photo and I, I never had a camera, but I would go there and you know wait in line <laughs> to get up closer, and then as soon as I got up there, I'd wait as long as it would take to take a photo, and even though it didn't take one, I would then go back, and sit down in my seat, but you know, that you
1: took a photo in your mind, he, in
0: my mind. Yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis, whenever, uh, somebody put the camera up, his foot would go up on the piano and uh, on the keyboard. And, uh, cause he wanted to look like the wild man whenever he was in a photo. So even though I didn't have a, I put my hand up like that and he put his foot up on the piano,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Psych.
0: but you know, that's, uh, you start seeing the people that are playing live on the radio, and then um, you know, that's inspiring. You know, to see uh, I went to see the Beatles at the Civic Arena and what it was it, nineteen sixty four or something there.
1: September fourteenth, nineteen sixty four. Yeah, you got it, yeah. <laughs>
0: anyway, uh that was a big thing, but uh the Jamboree was more like you could really get up close.
1: Yeah, it's like they, they they were humanizing these musicians to you.
0: Yeah, right. And uh so that was great. And then um as I got a little older, you know, I could drive myself places and there was nightclubs that had bluegrass and I would go see the bluegrass groups. Uh, my friends were playing, old, slightly older friends. So I'd go play, go to the bluegrass events and the folk music events. And then, uh, well, yeah, when Hot Rise started, I was in other bands that, you know, were making their living playing music, but I not. I don't know that we ever got on the radio. Uh, Hot Rise, being in a bluegrass group, there was a little bit of an organization there for bluegrass every town sort of has a radio that would have a, maybe a, maybe the public radio stations, which were new, kind of newer then in the early, Mm -hmm. uh, late Mm seventies, they would have a a block of time where they play bluegrass exclusively, maybe an hour or two a week. And maybe a commercial country radio station would have that as well. And, um, so those were the opportunities for bluegrass radio play. And, um, The first time I really noticed the effect of it was we played in Harrisonburg, Virginia. We traveled all the way, I think, from Colorado to start a tour there. And we went to the local college radio station and did a spot the night before and advertised the show. And a guy came, he came to watch us through the glass. He knew we were on the radio and he got down there to watch us and he wanted to ask our guitar player if he had his guitar solo you know he had learned it from the record that we'd put out uh, 6 months before and he wanted to know if he if he was playing it right and uh it was kind of scary to to realize somebody had listened that closely and then when we played the next <laughs> night and we played their first we played our very first song it was the first song on our record and people just went crazy cuz they'd been listening to that on that radio station and i thought you know we were playing in a brand new town we'd never played before but our our uh, turned out our reputation preceded us through the radio. And that was really mm-hmm. gratifying, you know, because um, sometimes you feel like the stuff goes out into a vacuum, but it mm-hmm. obviously had, had taken effect. And and uh, we saw that from time to time as we went around and realized that people had been listening. So, you know, that's the traditional medium for musical artists is to get your music on the radio, um, but in bluegrass and folk music, you could kind of in the commercial uh, dollars, you know. You have promoters that are promoting the next biggest thing, and you're not that at all. But the fact that they had these niche programs, you know, these blocks of that featured bluegrass, mm-hmm. was really helpful for us. And that continues to this day.
1: You're the youngest in a family of five children, and it seems like your siblings seem to have played like a big part in shaping your musicality and i specifically wanted to ask you about your sister molly um, you have made a few records together and have been performing together for nearly your whole lives um, you started singing in church She played coffee houses in high school and beyond what was it like to learn how to perform for you like were you a natural and also like how is it to have your sister, who's pretty close in age, she's only two years older, learning right along with you.
0: It was really good to have my sister there learning. And she, she was, uh, you know, just being just slightly older, she had more awareness of the music that was coming up. And uh, I, know, I know she she correct, I didn't know who Bob Dylan was, you know, they. she said, I can't believe you consider yourself a musician and you don't know who Bob Dylan is but that was you know that was before
1: nice. <laughs> older sister <yeah>. thing.
0: <laughs> but i mean that was bob dylan you know 64 or something or 65 he he was just starting to go electric then i didn't even know about him i knew his songs through uh peter paul and mary singing blowing in the wind and uh you could say man of constant sorrow they might have got that for the first dylan record or um some other songs that they recorded of dylan's but uh yeah, she was, um, she was studying piano or, you know, taking lessons and I took some lessons, but I was already starting a guitar and, and uh, it was good. We were both interested in music and we had somebody just, you know, right down the hall that we could collaborate with, you know. And uh, I like singing harmony. I, you know, sort of naturally find the parts just singing in church. And so if I could play the guitar and she could sing lead, I could find a harmony part. And we would have a little thing, you know, it would just be fun. So just having the access to somebody that's uh, interested in it, that's you know you're close to your age is really really important. You kind of egg each other on, and that same mm-hmm. thing happens when you have a you know other friends in school that you play with, and that that continued with classmates, and um, and then you start seeing the music scene and you meet more and more people. But uh, that early engagement with my sister was really vital, and. Um, mm. Singing together was real simple, real easy, and uh, there was no uh, charge on it. It wasn't like we had to do it. We were just doing it for fun. So when we were asked to perform for functions, it was, uh, didn't seem like a lot of pressure. And uh, I, think, like, I think one of the things that was really good was uh, playing in church uh, when the folk mass kind of thing started around. Uh, I was 12 years old when I started playing guitar. And they were just starting that maybe the year later in the the new new priest. the
1: Sunday night youth group?
0: Well, they had the Sunday night youth groups and they had a sort of a regular youth uh, sort of center that they they had stuff most nights of the week, too. But uh, Mm -hmm. there was actually uh, we actually sang songs for the service and um, it was a young priest that was interested in doing that and also in doing uh, original musical theater pieces, which he wrote the music for and he had a collaborator that wrote the lyrics and they drafted me in to write songs with them for the folk mass. They pick scripture and I would, you know, tune my guitar funny and find some kind of way into a song that went with, uh, that, uh, scriptural theme. You know, they would change the, change the words around to fit the music and I would change the music around to fit the words. And it was like early songwriting. And, uh, I'd already been playing and singing in church, and it wasn't a big deal to add that mm-hmm. to the equation, to write songs. It just all happens real gradually without a lot of uh, pressure. You know, a yeah. lot of, uh, Justin Moses is a guy I played with in, in recent years, a great instrumentalist here in Nash- Nashville. He said the same thing. He, you know, he grew up singing with his parents and, and siblings in church and playing in church, and there was really no you know, you really couldn't do any wrong, as long as you were, you know, behaving yourself, you could make a mistake and nobody would uh, complain. You just just learn and uh, you get comfortable with that. There's an energy from the audience you learn about really, really quickly. And you try to do your best and everything, but it's not like you're going to, you know, they're going to throw you out. So it's really easy. It, it breeds a, comf- a comfortable situation.
1: question about Molly Um, if you could talk about this if it had any kind of impact on the way that you um, would relate to like women in music because you had been playing and singing with Molly for so long if when you kind of got out there in the quote-unquote real world if that had had any impact on you in terms of working with other women musicians
0: well um, it was Difficult, it was more difficult for Molly to have a solo career than it was for me. She started making her own records. You know, we started, we made a duet, duet record. Um, I was well into the bluegrass w- uh, career with Hot Rise, and we did this as a side project. And um, she got a lot of attention, and she made a solo record, I think. But meanwhile, she's got, before she ever did that, she started a family. I'd started a family too but I had a wife who stayed home with the family when I had to go on tour and Molly it was harder for her cuz her husband her husband could pick up a lot of slack but uh it was harder for him it was just wasn't his role as much and didn't feel it felt right for Molly to, to to maybe be more bound to the home at least it, I don't mean it just ended up that way and uh yeah. so I think that was I noticed that and uh I know that it helped for her to, for us to tour together and, you know, it helped her get a solo recording, but it was harder for her to sustain it on her own. Whereas I could just keep going. I noticed that right really pretty early on. And that's a tough thing, but, uh, you know, I've, you know, I'm sensitive to that. And yet I know that I go along without realizing sometimes that I've got advantages that others don't have. And I think, you know, you see that with, uh, some of the artists that, like if I produced uh, Laurie Lewis, for instance, she was, she did not have a family, uh, so she was freer to do that. But she had a, she had a violin shop and she couldn't leave the violin shop and, uh, and tour as much as she, as I would, because I didn't have that encumbrance. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, I don't know, some of the other groups, uh, Kate McLeod's another one, I produced her and, uh, you know, she's a great writer Um, but again, she was raising children. It's harder for her to get away and do the, Mm -hmm. the nitty gritty. I mean, she, she kept writing, but the touring was harder.
1: Uh, you got your first guitar when you were 12 and you, sounds like you, uh, mostly self-taught yourself and you picked it up right away. You also play, uh, fiddle, mandolin, banjo, bazooki, and mandocello. What kind of, Learner, were you slash are you? Like how easy or difficult is it for you to pick up something new, whether it be instruments or any other kinds of hobbies?
0: Well, you know, uh, I'm probably, uh, probably fit an Asperger's kind of system, you know, kind of situation. I'm probably really good at certain things and others, I just, it just doesn't occur to me to even ever pay attention to it. You know, finances, I don't really care about them, uh, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) and uh, mechanical things. But like reading and writing and uh, playing music are just kind of really natural. The guitar kind of, I got one, some friends had them, and uh, I started playing what they were playing on them without having my own, and it was really fun, and so I got my own, and it just kind of happened real fast. It was like I don't know the motor skills and the my disposition towards it was really friendly, I guess, and the other you know uh when I started i played the, a little bit of piano, I took a few piano lessons and but when I got the guitar, it was like I could bring that with me wherever I went. Once I got to where I could play a little bit of music on it, it was a source of self esteem too It was like I could hear something that I could do and uh it was a way of getting over shyness, you know, with uh, people my age. Um, you know, you, I was I was okay. I played some sports, but I wasn't really good at it. And I was better at sports that I did on my own, like skiing or playing tennis by myself. You know, the singles. <laughs> I just wasn't a good team player. Yeah, so, up against
1: hitting up against the wall. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I mean, I played with another person, but um, not in the doubles. So I wasn't. I didn't like playing doubles. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, so okay. I don't know. Um, so music was kind of a solitary pursuit and, uh, I could measure my progress pretty easily myself by just learning a new song, new chord or whatever. And, uh, the aptitude was pretty, pretty good, pretty good. So, and the writing and reading, that was something too. It's like, I was more interested in playing with words, you know, than I am with, uh, machines. And, uh, mm. so it just was, uh. It just kind of fed all the time. It just kind of fed itself. And, and a new instrument, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, maybe a little bit distracted, too, like uh, ADHD kind of. I mean, I'm putting my syndromes on me, diagnosing myself. But, uh, you know, you, you get into a situation with uh, other musicians and there's four guitar players and then you go, oh, gee, it would be nice. I heard somebody play a banjo once. So that sounds good against all those guitars or a mandolin or a fiddle, you know my aunt gave me a fiddle and she said, maybe, you know, you're playing the guitar, maybe you'd like to try this. And it, it, I looked at it and thought, oh, that would be a valuable thing to add and a valuable skill to add sounds and textures. So if I get bored with one thing, I could, you know, find it on another. So the violin was kind of like a real challenge to get to where I could play it um, and I found between the guitar and the violin a friend had a mandolin i went oh this is this is how you learn between the two because the fingering's the same as on the violin but Mm -hmm. it's you pluck it pluck it like a guitar um so that was really valuable and so all of a sudden i got three instruments that i'm paying attention to and uh you know a banjo is kind of like a guitar just slightly tuned different and the bouzouki and the mandola and the mandolin are all the same they're all kind of relatively uh simple systems that are just they start from a different place in the range of musical scales you know and it's just uh it's really not that hard there but they're but they're attractive you know that uh, what's good I think about learning a new instrument is you start as a beginner again and uh that makes the really simple things interesting again and um it's a way of looking at music anew and uh every time yeah. Uh, you know playing a different instrument, playing a you know tuning the guitar, I used to do that too. I saw Johnny Mitchell do that. She had tune her guitar different for each song, and I went well that 's pretty cool and then I figured out some of those tunings and started messing with those and that 's like a different instrument you know you're all of a sudden you're you 're a l- little bit at sea and you 're having to begin again, and I think that 's really important.
1: Okay, this may or may not be an interesting question, but I know a lot of lefties. Um, you're naturally left-handed, but you play the guitar and your other instruments right-handed. Yeah. How did that end up happening? Like, I feel like most lefties are like really proud to identify themselves as a left-handed player. So, are is that you? Are you a proud lefty? And like, what's it like to live this dual? Lefty righty v- life.
0: It's funny. Uh, it's funny because my older brothers, um, they played sports, and you know they threw right. They were right-handed, and so when I started learning to play baseball, I threw right, and I, uh, you know, you know play, played played those, and I played tennis that way. You know, it's funny because I was such a big Beatles fan. I mean, that was one of the reasons I started playing the guitar. And I don't know why I didn't notice that Paul McCartney played his left-handed. But my friends all had right-handed guitars. So I started Mm. on theirs. And, uh, you know, whenever it comes up, people say, well, why didn't you learn? How can you do that? How can you play right-handed when you're left-handed? The truth is, you use both hands. And uh, they Mm. just do different things. seems like left-handed, you know, on the fingerboard... That seems more detailed and more confusing than the right hand. But right-handed yeah. players use their left hand for that fingerboard. So I don't know. Uh but uh I'm in the end I'm glad that I didn't learn left-handed because that means I can buy used guitars, you know, a plenty cuz there's a lot more right-handed ones. <laughs> <laughs> and uh same with violins and everything else. It's just uh, there is a thing with the touch of the right hand, um, the manual thing, the touch of it, especially with the violin bow, the subtleties of that. Maybe I would have been better off left handed. I don't know. Uh, But Hmm. so far, it's worked out. you
1: You went to Colby College in Maine, but you left early to go after music. You eventually made your way to Colorado where there were lots of open-minded and music-loving people out there, which makes for a good audience. And you said, I knew I would be a musician, but I was wary of any kind of commercial rat race and the pressure to succeed in places like L.A., New York, Nashville. Um, can you expand more on that sentiment? And like, what is important to you because you cultivated your music in the Colorado type of environment?
0: Uh, well, I think that in Colorado, it's the open-minded, open-minded sort of nature of the audience and just people in general, um, it bred, you know, you were free to do what you felt was, was good. You know, you, you, if you offered something that you'd worked on and, you know, tried to hone and, you know, present well, it usually got some ears and, uh, In Nashville, when Hot Rise started showing up in Nashville, I realized people were really, they're definitely more affected by the big commercial successes and trying to replicate those things. Everybody's looking for the next big thing and there's a trap where you imitate something and if you imitate some success, you're usually chasing it, you know, you're not really gonna be that success and uh it's usually right about the time that something becomes really a trend something new comes along which becomes eventually the new trend it might it might become the new trend it might start a new trend so i was always wary of just trying to follow along with the crowd you know and i just wanted to do what i felt strongly about personally and you know it's I'm really interested, you know, I got to Colorado. And I was really interested in Django and Reinhardt and that kind of music and uh, you know, swing jazz stuff and I was also learning to play the violin and you know fiddle and trying to learn uh more about bluegrass and that's not like a uh commercial sounding um, direction.
1: No, it is not. No. But uh,
0: <laughs> but I found friends who were interested in this and we were able to form uh, you know, uh combined forces and we had a little band called Ophelia Swing Band and we learned a lot together and we brought the music to people who really you know a lot of them really appreciated it and uh so that was you know there's enough reward enough carrot at the end of the stick to keep you going it's not like you need also like going to New York or Los Angeles it would be more expensive to live and uh you'd have to be playing music that other people wanted you know, planned cover planned cover in a cover band, you know, in a holiday and just never really appealed to me. I really wanted to write my own stuff or find a find my own niche, you know. And um it was easier to do that in a place like Colorado. A college town is good for that. Just any college town really.
1: Yeah, I'm from Boston and that yeah. definitely happens there. Um so you mentioned Hot Rise, which is the band, but you've also been in New Grange and the Earls of Leicester. Um, Hot Rise formed in 1978, and you played and released records consistently for 12 years. You've done reunion shows, and we're known as America's most innovative and entertaining bluegrass (laughs) band. Um, Original member Charles Sautel sadly died in 99. Brian Sutton joined for the reunion shows after that. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about this. Like It must be very intense to play in a band where someone has passed away. What were those Hot Rise shows like without Charles, and in what ways did he still feel like part of the band?
0: Charles was uh, was a big part of the soul of Hot Rise. He was a great instrumentalist and singer, and uh, he was really, really smart with recording technology and sound technology for live shows as well. And uh, But he was the soul as far as like what our direction was. He started as the bass player, and our guitar player quit and he moved the guitar and the music changed when he switched the guitar it was it became more what he was good at, which was traditional bluegrass music and uh he was a he studied visual art in college he had a degree uh studio art rather and um you know he 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 was a sculptor uh potter and and did some painting and stuff but he was artistic and how he thought about the music, and he was the one that taught us to sing around one microphone instead of um, all standing stationary on stage, you get a little choreography going, was, he said, you know, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of sleight of hand. People don't notice that the other instruments are kind of disappearing in the mix when you move around to sing around that one mic. And in fact, we don't all have to play while we're all singing around that mic, you know. And yeah, it really I love was, that move. That's it was smart. really... Really, um, we learned that that particular thing, but also just the way we played and uh, the arrangements and stuff. He was he was more sensitive to to, to the art of things, and uh, and he never liked blow dry bluegrass. He said, "I hate blow blow dry bluegrass. You know, it's like so perfect that it doesn't sound real." He liked the, the nitty gritty stuff, and uh, he wanted it to be a clear sound. And um he wanted to, us to play precisely, but he didn't want it to be uh soulless. He wanted to let certain chances uh, happen, you know, take chances with it. So when he died, I mean it was uh it was a big blow. We were we weren't a full time group anymore when he passed away. But um we did a lot of reunion shows after nineteen ninety and uh so those nine years he was, you know, we played together, but he got, he started getting sick. And so, you know, we were doing our best to perform when we could with him. And of course he, he had difficulty playing as we, as he went on. He, he the last couple of years, it was harder for him to tour. You know, we weren't touring much, but it was harder. And, um, you know, we went through that with him and we saw a big change in him. He was also like a triple Virgo. He was like really, fastidious about sound systems and about his guitars about his clothes he was the one that sort of suggested we wear suits you know and dress up for shows and uh for him to get really sick like that and his looks changed and a lot of stuff that used to bother him stopped bothering him because he was facing a whole whole different kind of challenge so we learned a lot from him as he went through that and when when he passed away, all of a sudden we were, uh, we had a, a summer of several gigs uh, that we were going to do with him. And so we did them as a tribute to him. And we hired different people, and mostly Peter Rowan. Pe- he had been playing with Peter Rowan a lot uh, when he wasn't playing with Hot Rise. And uh, so we, we drafted Peter to be our guitarist. and. That only worked for a little while because Peter wasn't really gonna buy into being a member of Hot Rise. And uh, so we needed somebody that would just fill Charles's role. But it was really hard to find anybody that could. Pete, Pete was great for the soul factor, but uh, we had Jeff White, we had uh, Jim Hurst, all great, great uh, players. David Greer played once, we played at Steve Martin's wedding. But when we got Brian, Brian was really good because uh, he, he grew up with Hot Rise music and he understood That Charles's guitar role was unique. It wasn't like a Tony Rice role. It wasn't like a Lesser Flat role. It was a Charles Sautele role. And um, you know, listening to that music and internalizing it from a grade school age was really a key thing for his qualification there. And uh, Mm -hmm. but Charles is always in the back there when you're when you're you're touring without him and playing on a show or even recording without him. You think about how he would say, you know, what we should do. we ask ourselves that question all the time.
1: Um, so your wife, Jan Fabricius? How yeah. How do you say her name? Yeah. Fabricius. Jan Fabricius writes, tours, and records with you, and it seems like her addition to your music was pretty natural. How has that organic origin of your musical partnership impacted the way you play together
0: well we um, we met at bluegrass festivals and uh, and then when we started dating we would uh, you know I didn't even know that she sang when we started dating I knew that she played a little bit of mandolin, so we started playing mandolins together and uh, we that's really great for uh, just hanging around the house and just for fun. Um, I, you know, I don't play fiddle on stage much anymore, but I get to play around with her, you play fiddle tunes at home and she, that she knows, and we learn them together. And uh, that's great. You're learning stuff together is really important. And then we started uh, singing together. Her harmony, and I was doing a session, had a couple people over here at the house, and I was just trying to make a home recording of this song. And uh, she was singing along off to the side, and I just grabbed her and pulled her into the microphone, and that was the first time she had recorded um, a, a vocal or anything. And uh, it just sounded good. She
1: was, she was up for it?
0: Yeah, she was up for it. I just kind of grabbed her, and we all of a sudden she was singing harmony on the same mic as me, which, you know, normally you'd plan it ahead and have another mic for her, mm-hmm. but we were just ready to do it, and uh, it ended up being on a record. It's uh, Tulips on a Table on the Pompadour record. When she started singing, I said, "Wow, that's really good." She just finds the harmony parts real naturally. So it's a great bond as a couple to have a, something to do for fun, um, and then it's become uh, part of our livelihood as you know making a living. It, it's mm-hmm. uh, in one way we don't, we never get away from one another, but in, the other, in another way <laughs> we have to we have to get along. We have to put you know we have to. Uh, it re- One reinforces the other, you know, it's kind of a family business now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started writing songs together and that's, you know, that increases the bond and helps a lot of things along. Um, we have to meet in the middle. I'll work to, you know, teach her things that expands her musical knowledge and her repertoire and she'll um, keep me down to earth. And uh, I think it's kind of helpful. I mean, she's been playing music all her life, but never... Never really constantly until you know never having to on stage or anything like that it was always always informal until she started playing with me on stage so it's kind of a uh it's a part it's a process of finding the middle ground and uh trying to strengthen that as much as possible.
1: I want to talk about being funny um, you have a reputation for being funny, especially due to hot rises comic alter ego, Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers, and there are funny moments on your new album in your writing. What has it been like for you to incorporate humor into your music, like in performing and in writing, and what benefits to your music do you see in being a funny guy?
0: Well, I don't know. I think uh, maybe it's my family, you know, uh, they were always making wise cracks around the dinner table or in the car and driving around together. And, uh, My mother liked to play practical jokes, and um, my dad really had a lighthearted attitude towards life. He was always willing to uh, consider our requests for frivolous things like guitars (laughs) and uh, you know (laughs) amplifiers and stuff. But uh, I think you know I like the idea of somebody like uh, Roger Miller, who really was irreverent with his music. The Beatles were always really funny. They were really kind of um, quirky, you know, with their uh, responses and in interviews and things. And um, it's hard for the... I think if you put on a show, somebody like the folk musician, uh, Irish folk legend uh, Mick Maloney said, you know, you want people to laugh, you want them to cry, you want them to, to tap their foot and uh, maybe think about something that they hadn't thought about those are some of the things you can do with a musical performance and so mm. a little of each really you know and the and how you how you structure a concert or a presentation a little of this a little of that and a and a little funny thing right at the right time will set off it keep keeps things from being too heavy you know and uh it's uh the humor is you find it where you can find it. I don't really plan it, um, but I stumble on things, and uh, you remember them. You're, you know, it's just a trial and error. You remember jokes at work, and you just remember them, and they're filed away, and when the present, when the opportunity comes, you can, you can grab them.
1: I did want to ask you about My favorite song on the record, Little Lamb, Little Lamb, Mm. um, which was inspired by seeing lamps romping around in Ireland. Um, I am very drawn to that song because I used to raise lambs when I was a kid. And there's like nothing like seeing a baby lamb do that like sideways stomp after their mom like down a hill. Yeah. Um, So that song is like really, really sweet. But there is... An undertone, like there is an edge to it, can you talk about writing such a um, a positive song about something like so adorable like lambs without being like too cheesy or too naive?
0: Well, I think that little um bittersweet part of it you know the the bitter part added to the sweet keeps it from being too t- kind of a trite song. I mean comparing the the newborn to a newborn lamb to Uh, you know, your old age advancing, you know, is, uh, is a good way. And, um, it's about, and it's kind of like, you know, you ask about how to, you know, how to age well, and that's kind of it, you know, you, you pay attention to the young, the youngest among you and let that inspire you. That's the thing. It's like this life goes on and this is proof of it and joy. There's a lot of joy in just being alive and the young the youngest ones among you can sort of remind you of that when you're kind of bogged down in the day-to-day and i think that's uh springtime is that way in general i think spring is like new growth uh budding trees it's like creativity in uh visible form and a newborn baby is always like a reassuring thing to me i said yeah life is going on where we can continue and you know, you talk to a kid that's just come back from school, and they've learned something, and it's really inspiring to me to get down in, you know, in there with that and and realize not only that it's still happening, but it's it's not happening just for them. And you could do it too. But uh, mm. it's also, you know, accepting that you're not going to be around forever, but everything else is going to continue. And I think that's, you know, with the music. My music is—it's uh, good for you know certain things, and uh, it it will represent a time and place, as you know after I'm gone maybe. And uh, mm. but I'm really just doing what other people have done, and uh, I know when a new musician like Sarah Jaros comes up, I go, hey, she's following in my path. She's going to take that baton, and she's going to do a great job with it. And uh, uh, I applaud that is I'm not going to be able Mm. to keep up forever.
1: This is a good time to ask this question. You've talked about the future of bluegrass. You said it's like a venerable old tree that's healthy. The roots are growing just as well as the branches, and that it's cool to see the next generation build upon the tradition of bluegrass, like players like Sarah Jaros and Chris Thiele. For you, what have been some problems of the bluegrass genre, and how have you seen those problems evolve and be solved? if they have been solved?
0: Well, um, you know, uh, one of the things that bluegrass is uh, it's very much um, music of Southern whites. And uh, we have so much music, so much of the music is influenced by uh, the African-American element. You know, the slave population brought the banjo. Um, Kind of rhythms, the, the rhythms that are in bluegrass are kind of, and jazz are, are, a result of that influence, but none of the people playing it are have that. You know, they don't look, they don't reflect that. And the other thing is, there's been uh, very few women in bluegrass uh, historically, so with exceptions like some of all the greats: uh, Bill Monroe, Lester Flat, uh, Ralph Stanley. They learned from their mothers. They learned the songs from their mothers, and maybe even their instrumental skills. But their mothers were not going to be out there performing, and. Uh, it's just uh, over and over. You hear that story, and but that's changing. And um, there are people of color playing bluegrass, and there are people, you know, of uh, there's uh, people of all sexual persuasions playing bluegrass too. Now we have uh, you know bluegrass pride events and that kind of thing. So it's changing, um, but it's the music is kind of, in some ways, is associated with a southern culture, which I don't. Always interface with, and uh, I think the diversity in the music has really helped that. That still exists, you know. There is sort of a prejudice kind of against women and against uh, people of color in the music, I think. But uh, it's um, there is it's sort of sectioned off, and I think mm-hmm. you know people just don't want to deal with it. Certain crowd doesn't want to deal with it, and that's okay, I guess. But it's it's improving. And uh, at least there's room. There's audiences are able to find all spectrums now, and that's yeah. helpful. Um, but the music, uh, you know, it's it gets uh, imitative, and it's uh, every once in a while somebody comes around and changes it up. Um, I think Chris Seely has done a really good job of expanding the possibilities of a string band and uh, really, you know, uh, the way you compose songs, you can do longer form things that are not just instrumental music, they can include thematic vocal things. I don't know, that the technology of the music is um, changed, the way it's presented with, with uh, you know, with modern electronics and sound systems and stuff, it gets a little bit, taking it out of the smaller venues and putting it on giant stages, and everybody kind of uh, plugging in. It, it, it's it's not as intimate a performance and it doesn't, I don't know, there's something about playing without the pickups and moving around on mics that's hard to reproduce with pickups. And it's, uh, hmm. they're doing it better at it all the time. But, you know, there's, it's a change in-ear monitors or another thing. It's like, it's a great thing, uh, really helps the, the sound performance. Uh, It helps the musicians hear each other better. Um, It helps the guy working the sound to bring it to the audience uh, because they're not interfering with the monitors. But then there's an isolation because you're just only hearing your band members and uh, you don't really hear the audience as much. So, you know, I think you just kind of continue to evolve and you kind of temper those things and learn other ways to interface. But uh, as you know, it's always, kids are learning the music in different ways. Like uh, when cassettes came in, that was a brilliant thing. People started trading tapes. They could record uh, over the, you know, they could make copies of those tapes and trade with their friends. CDs came in and people learned how to rewind those CDs just to, you know, uh, play it two seconds at a time and learn these things. Like little kids learned how to work the controls better than I could. You know and it's, it's just uh, the new technology, uh, YouTube, I mean, think about how that's changed, uh, one of the greatest yeah. greatest educational tools in the world uh, ever, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of revolutionizing things. we don't even know how much it's changing things. So you know, I think the technology helps, but it can get in the way at times. It can make things a little yeah. flat, and um, perfection. Pro Tools is like you can tune everything up and put it exactly in time, and it gets to where it's not really real anymore. And I think that's a danger. But, uh, you know, the kids coming up, they think that people should sing that way. That's, you have to know how to sing the way that it sounds when you've auto-tuned. And uh, some of them can actually do it. So I don't know. I think it's uh, it's interesting. The technology changes the way the music is played and sung and and how it comes across. And uh, but, but I think in general, people are always looking for the real human connection and the real something homemade, something something that's uh, you know the one thing that can't be re- reproduced is a live performance. And uh, you know you can record it, you can make a videotape of it, but you're not there and um, I don't think that'll ever, that value will never go away.
1: All right. Um, do you have time to do the lightning round? The lightning very round. fun. Okay. You won't regret it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Tim O'Brien. You are a chef. What is your favorite food to make?
0: Pasta. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like handmade pasta or just put it in the pot? No,
0: I've bought a sauce. I make a sauce.
1: Ah. Uh, what book should I read next?
0: Uh, The Overstory.
1: Who is your favorite up-and-coming musician?
0: Um, Bella White.
1: Nice, (laughs) mine too. Okay, besides Red, what are your nicknames that you can share?
0: Oh, what am I? Uh, Rusty. Rusty. Rusty Rusty is my alter ego that gets real uh, sort of touchy-feely, and uh, he's he's the life of the party, or he's like crying all the time, something like that.
1: What was the first piece of music you bought with your own money?
0: It was probably a Beatles 45. I don't know what it was. might have been Day Tripper.
1: Do you still have it?
0: No. Dang. Not that. Not the 45.
1: What is your favorite road snack? Corn nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Who is the greatest singer of all time?
0: It might be uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm.
1: Okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place in the world?
0: I think it's in uh, Ireland.
1: Mm. <laughs> Anywhere specific? Or all of Dingle.
0: Ireland? I think Dingle. Okay, yeah
1: Dingle. Yeah. All right, Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and congrats on the new album. It's wonderful. Thank you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can check out all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. You know, maybe you're about to go to a bluegrass festival and you can bring a little Bluetooth speaker and play it by the fireside and everybody can listen and drink their kombucha and their CBD seltzers and have a good time. Maybe that's something you could do. I mean, it's just an idea. It's just an idea. Okay, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.